0: It would be cute to, like, hand them down, you know, our copies of books and
1: be like, look, those are all my notes from when I read it. Now you can be as traumatized as I. (laughs) Okay, why do you have to take these nice things and spin them? In the future, we get our kids to read Harry Potter, right? And then finally I give them the Order of the Phoenix, and I'm like, you're never going to recover from this one. (laughs) everyone, welcome back to the Silver Call Review. I'm Madison. And I'm
0: Dea And today we are starting the final book in the Harry Potter series, Harry
1: Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yay, we're almost done. Very exciting. Like the series. Well, kind of. In terms of physical books, we are almost done with the series. Time-wise, not so much. Yeah, no. Not at all. Um, but before we dive into any content, we are going to start with our character and our spell of the episode. you want to start us off?
0: Yes, ma'am. Our character of the episode is Elpheus Dodge. First mentioned in Order of the Phoenix, Elpheus Dodge is a member of the Order of the Phoenix and a childhood friend of Albus Dumbledore. He pens an obituary for Dumbledore, portraying his dearly departed friend in the best possible light, which we will see later.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the spell of the episode is Expelliarmus, which is used to disarm the target. The etymology of the spell is that in Latin, Expellery means to drive out and Arma means weapon. The magic moment for this spell is that during the Battle of the Seven Potters in Deathly Hallows, Harry uses this spell to disarm Stan Shunpike, who is working for Voldemort under the Imperius Curse. This revealed the real Harry to the Death Eaters who knew the spell to be his calling card. So, before we dive
0: into the book, there is a little epigraph, which I didn't know that's what it was called. I was just calling it, like, the pre Um, that I am a nerd, so I did look them up because no other book has had an epigraph. This is the first one that has had stuff before it, and I was like, she must have, like, put it in here for a reason. To be more specific, the epigraph are quotes that come before the book. Yes, that is true. They are two quotes. So, the first one is from the Liberation Bearers. It is a tragedy by aeschylus I'm not pronouncing that right at all, but it's a Greek, like, poet, playwright. But he is known as the father of tragedy, and this is a play from a trilogy called The Oresteia, and this is, like, the middle piece, and the, like, play itself deals with themes of balancing justice and revenge, like, the normal Greek tragedy stuff, killing your family, you know how it goes. But I thought this one was, like, really interesting for her to put in here, because it kind of talks about how We as humans, like, kill, and it's treated as, like, this, like, incurable disease, but, like, we can cure it. We just have to search within ourselves because, like, the answer is, like, inside of us, not outside of us. It's, like, yes, we kill, but we can also choose not to, which I think is very prominent in the difference between, like, Voldemort and Harry. Like, we'll see later, like, people, like, tell Harry, oh, don't just disarm, but Harry chooses. He's, like, no, like, we're not gonna do, like, harm. Um... So, like, this evil and, like, this bloodlust that he speaks of is what started these wizarding wars in the first place. And fixing it is something that, again, like, Baltimore was not interested in doing. And I also think that the last line, bless the children, give them triumph now, is, like, very harrowing because it kind of reminds you that these are literal children fighting in this second wizarding war. Like, yes, there are adults, but it's mostly minors who have no place in a war, but, like, they f- have to fight anyway. So it's like, yeah, like, help them. Like, they need this win. And then the second one is uh, from More Fruits of Solitude. It's by William Penn, who is a Quaker from the 1800s. And the thing that's interesting about this one is that the book is a collection of, like, lines that are, like, kind of, like, nice to live by and, like, you know, kind of, like, quotes. And this is presented in the book as a paragraph, but it's not actually a paragraph at all. It's multiple lines that JK chose to put all together in this part of the epigraph. And the interesting thing about this is that the word friends is changed to be lowercase in this, but in the original text it was capitalized because Penn was a Quaker, like also called like the Society of Friends, meaning that friends with like the capital F are being talked about like his religious fellows, like in the sense that they have chosen a philosophy, a lifestyle and this like life experience makes them closer than family and I think as we read the book we see that like with Harry, Ron, Hermione and like others but these three specifically they go through this life experience together and it's like the whole meaning of the book like this kind of like you know brings them closer together especially taking into consideration that it's like underlying meaning is the whole life after death of this like epigraph and that's quite literally Harry's whole arc so I thought that would be fun to note because I'm a nerd and okay. she had to put it in there
1: yeah pretty cool all right so let's start with the book content now which this is a fat book so <laughs> it is we've got some time to dissect her probably have a lot of things to say and chapter one, we're starting off with a, s- a moonlit meeting between Snape and Yaxley, who walk together to Malfoy Manor, which sounds intimate now that I say that out loud, actually. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize when I wrote that down that I was going to like ship. that. New ship. Oh, ooh, Yaxley. Snaxley. Snaxley? <laughs> Snaxley? <laughs> That's okay. their ship name. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, Anyways, their end destination is the drawing room where Voldemort and his Death Eaters await at a large, ornate table. There also happens to be a human body suspended in midair above the table, just slowly rotating and seemingly unnoticed by everyone at the table. Terrifying. Uh, I guess they couldn't afford the chandelier, so they went with that. (laughs) You are the worst. (laughs) I'm just saying. So once seated, Snape informed Voldemort that the order intends to move Harry from his current place of safety next Saturday at nightfall. Yaxley, however, heard a different report from an orer named Dawlish who said he will be moved on the 30th. Snape explains this away as the man being confused. So there's kind of a little argument about it. Voldemort is kind of leaning towards Snape's um, recollection of it, but.
0: Which is interesting because when they get there, Snape, like Voldemort places Snape right directly beside mm-hmm. him and then puts Yaxley over there. So I think this, like that in the beginning, just kind of shows us, like, he does. Trust, trust me, him Like immediately mm-hmm. after the events of book six, and I think that's like interest. Like knowing what we know, it's like interesting to see how everyone in the order doesn't trust him. None of the Death Eaters really trust him, but the two, like the goodest good and the baddest evil, trust him wholeheartedly. And I think, as much as I don't like him, I think he's a really good character, and I think this is like a good showcase of that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Yaxley reveals he has successfully placed, like, um, Imperius Pious thickness. Uh, which is the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, which moves them one step closer to taking over the ministry completely. And Voldemort kind of like uses all this information to surmise that the ministry will not be his by Saturday, so they will have to intercept Harry's transport to get him, because once he gets to the safe house, he's kind of yeah. untouchable. Mm-hmm. And he states that he's going to see to it personally this time that they get Harry. Uh, he states that he is the one that must kill Harry Potter, and he shall be. And this is answered from a whale, like with, with a whale from a prisoner somewhere below. We don't know who this prisoner yeah. is. We just know that they're whaling. And then he's like, um, what the heck? I thought I told you to shut him up to um, Peter. So that's an interesting little who is the, who's the prisoner. Right so Voldemort says he requires the use of someone else's wand and requests that he use Lucius, who is now apparently out of Azkaban. He's free. Yeah. And S- not doing well. <laughs> Definitely not. Actually, none of the Malfoys are doing well. They are all on edge. Which Voldemort kind of interrogates Lucius about during, like his little conversation with them. He's like, "Oh, what you don't want me in this house, blah 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 blah. Your family's not loyal." And during this point, Nagini like slithers up to lay behind Voldemort's shoulders, which is kind of dope as hell. Kind Mm -hmm. of a power move. Giving Britney Spears at the VMAs. VMAs. No, for sure. And so Bellatrix is assuring him that there is no higher pleasure than having him stay in their family house, which I'm sure she believes in because... Wholeheartedly. They're getting it on. I don't know. Isn't she pregnant at this point? I feel like she has to be. Yeah, right? I don't know. I hate to think about that. It's gross. (laughs) At this point, Voldemort reveals that Bellatrix's niece, Tonks, has married Remus Lupin. He's like, oh, a werewolf? Seriously? And Bellatrix is like really offended by this, so it's a a touchy subject. It is. And then, with a flick of Lucius's wand, Voldemort awakens the floating house guest, who we now find out is Charity Burbage, and she is the Muggle Studies teacher at Hogwarts. And she pleads with Severus immediately to help her, which is like heartbreaking. Yeah. But Voldemort just immediately uses Avada Kedavra to kill her, and simply says, "Dinner, Nagini." Okay.
0: <laughs> Literally a harrowing like what a way to start off this book truly like, with a bang.
1: Yeah, there's no messing around this time. So in the other books, you know, it's usually semi-chill until you get to like Halloween time, yep. and then things start happening. Students are petrified, people are breaking into the castle, but this time they're like, "Oh, here we go." She's dead. Last first chapter. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and then in chapter two we get a very dramatic change of scene. So now we're with Harry. Um, we're at Number Four Privet Drive, and he's bleeding because, of course, he is. And he leaves his room and finds that someone left, like, a cup of tea outside his door, and he's not sure why. So he just kind of skips over it and goes to run his finger under cold water because he's cleaning out his school trunk, and he cut it. So after he wipes that down, he gets back, and he's finding a bunch of stuff from his past. So a badge from the Triwizard Tournament... Um, a sneak a scope and the gold locket with the RAB note. And then he finds uh, a shard of the mirror that Sirius gave him years ago, and that's what he cut himself on. So he's getting a bunch of reminders of Cedric dying, of Dumbledore dying, of Sirius dying. <laughs> like, this is just a rough <laughs> look through this trunk. Yeah. But he spends a while cleaning out the rest of the trunk because apparently he hasn't done it in the six years he's been at Hogwarts. He's a boy. Makes sense. I just can't imagine that. But he's deciding what he's gonna take with him on this little Horcrux hunt that he's planning on going with, and what he's gonna leave behind. Um, so all that's left after he's done with that is some newspapers next to Hedwig's cage, and there are a bunch of you know daily profits from the summer, and he's looking for a specific like issue of it. So once he finds it, it turns out to be a fond memory of Dumbledore by someone, our character of the episode, called Elpheus Dodge, who is an old school friend from Dumbledore's. So as we're reading this, we learn a lot about Dumbledore from Dodge's article. So apparently his dad died in Azkaban after attacking Muggles, and that was a shame that like ruined their family from when Dumbledore was young. And then as we know, he went on to prove that he himself was a strong defender of Muggles and not like his father. This whole article, I felt, was a little giving a bit... Yeah, we dated without actually saying it.
1: Which, honestly, when you know canonically um, Dumbledore's sexuality, it does make sense. I also got those undertones that like there was something romantic between them for at least a little bit um he literally says he's like when we met our mutual attraction was instant and i was like was it (laughs) that like that one especially i was like oh interesting so it's giving like maybe the first boyfriend type of vibe right i thought so too uh
0: dodgeland continues to write that by the end of dumbledore's first year he had shed any connection with his father and was only known as the most talisman student in the school's history which is crazy to think about because He's basically a freshman. Like, this is the end of his first year. Yeah. And he's already, like, the most talented student in the whole school's history. Like, that's crazy. And I think it's an interesting parallel to Harry after his first year having defeated Voldemort twice by 11 and killed a man. Uh, he did do that. <laughs> he had two, two, two and a half bodies by the time he was 11. Uh. But apparently Dumbledore also had two siblings. He had a younger brother named Aberforth and an unwell, even younger sister named Ariana. Um, When his mother died, Albus went home to take care of them after graduating from Hogwarts instead of going on, like, a traveling trip with Dodge um, that every college kid does after they graduate. And then after that, Ariana died soon after because Dumbledore just can't catch a break, apparently. Dodge then concludes by briefly, like like, doing, like, highlights of Dumbledore's career, including his famous defeat of Grindelwald in 1945, and then his discovery of the Twelve Uses of Dragon's Blood, and he reminds everyone how, like, kind and good-hearted Dumbledore was and how that's, like, the most important thing ever. Um, And Harry keeps looking at this picture of Dumbledore, and he starts to think something that, like, we talked about in Book 6, about how he wishes he had known him better or, like, tried to get to know him at all, because these are all things that Harry had no idea about, and that we, if you were like a first-time reader, we also like know nothing about at this point. And then he picks up today's issue of the Daily Prophet, which contains a story claiming to tell the scandalous truth about Dumbledore, according to Rita Skeeter, who we know to be a nasty, lying reporter. Um, so she has published a biography of Dumbledore that alludes to, like, a dark side of him after four weeks after his death, which I thought was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's been a month, especially when we know it's, like, not even a nice biography. Like, it's a, hey, this dude fucking sucks biography. Crazy. And the part that um, catches my eye about this part is the part where she kind of alludes that Grindelwald and Dumbledore didn't really have a fight, that Grindelwald just surrendered quickly, and I think knowing now that, like, they were lovers, it makes it more interesting to, like, read about that, like, suspicion, and, like, obviously, JK Rowling had no intention of making Dumbledore gay when she wrote this, but I think it is fun that, like, you can pick stuff out that, like, would be like, okay, maybe there's some, like, you know, like, Maybe she did think about it. She just inadvertently
1: writes gay characters, and this time she she decided not to cover it up. I think also reading this part was kind of a renewed sadness, almost, of the fact that they're not finishing the Fantastic Beasts movies, which we'll we'll talk about those later on, and whether or not they really are about Fantastic Beasts if they were wrongly labeled. (laughs) Fair. And the elements of those movies, but I think that seeing the finality of Dumbledore and Grindelwald would have been really cool, especially because they allude to it so much. Exactly. No, I agree. Also, this whole, like, essay, whatever you want to call it, that this man has written, Alphias has written about um, Dumbledore, is giving a lot of intimate details about the horrors of his past and not really celebrating <laughs> him so much. He's like, oh... You know, like, rough-ass childhood. It's like rough-ass childhood. Here's the majority of this paper is going to be about his childhood. Like, JK was like, let me info dump. But, like, in, like, a subtle way. This is not subtle at all. This
0: is just full
1: on. Here's some exposition. Like, why would I? If if you died, <laughs> I'm not going to submit some paper to the newspaper that's like, <laughs> here's a really detailed account of her childhood trauma. And then also, she was a good friend. Rest in peace. Maybe love her. <laughs> that was <laughs> not it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely is, like, well-intentioned, but, like, maybe not all that information. Was Execution, needed. maybe not exactly. Yeah, right, exactly. And then, um, Skeeter, in this, like, thing, continues to, like, give up any juicy secrets, but she claims that skeleton... What? She claims that Dumbledore did have a lot of skeletons in his closet, and then she even talks about, like, Dumbledore and Harry's relationship, like, together, and then she casts doubt on... That whole thing, and Harry is of course enraged by this, and he like throws up the new- throws out the newspaper, and he picks up um, the shard of the mirror, um, thinking about Dumbledore and thinking about Rita Skeeter, and then for a split second he sees a flash of a very bright blue eye, and he could have sworn that it was the blue eye of Dumbledore, but there's nothing blue in his room, bum, bum, bum. so that's interesting. Dumbledore's looking at it from the grave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming back to haunt you, bitch. I feel like he should have would have been a lot helpful if he was there as like a ghost okay
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) and that's the end of chapter two okay so there was one callback that i wanted to discuss in chapter two it's on page 21 um it is a callback to the first book when harry harry remembers asking dumbledore what he sees in the mirror of erised and dumbledore tells him he sees himself holding a pair of thick woolen socks which at this point is leading you to wonder What did he actually see? Because at this point, Harry is like, I don't think that that's what he actually saw. So now, now you're thinking, oh, maybe he's not telling the truth. You're like, what did he see? Which I think opens up more discussions later on. um, If you want to tie in a little Grindelwald moment or whatever you want to do. Oh, that's true. Because you could, I mean, if you go into this knowing about Grindelwald, you could be like, oh, maybe he saw him with Grindelwald. Maybe he saw him with both of his siblings. You know what that's I mean? True. Like, There are so many things that he could have seen. Yeah, that's true. But um, we are in chapter three now. Vernon calls for Harry, and when he goes downstairs, he finds all three of the Dursleys dressed for travel. And Vernon apparently can't bring himself to fully accept that Harry is, like, telling the truth, I guess. So Harry's told him about Lord Voldemort and that they are in danger because of it. So they keep packing and unpacking because they aren't sure whether or not they're going to leave. Which is so funny. This time Vernon is saying he doesn't believe Harry and this is just a ploy to get the house. And Harry's like, dude, I already have a house from my godfather, why would I want this crusty, dusty one? All the happy memories? Yeah. It's so funny. (laughs) So Vernon argues at this point that the Ministry should protect them, which Harry obviously finds laughable, since the Ministry, first of all, sucks, and second of all, has definitely been infiltrated. Yeah. So then Harry has to re-explain how all these tragedies, disappearances, and deaths are being caused by Voldemort, and they will be his victims too if they don't leave. And at this point, Dudley actually speaks up and tells his parents he's going with the order, which forces their hand to kind of follow suit. So Dedalus and Dedalus, Dedalus, I don't know. Dedalus, yeah. Dedalus and Hestia show up now for the Dursleys, informing them that they will drive far enough to disapparate so that the Ministry doesn't have an excuse to arrest Harry for underage magic, and they're going to time it correctly for when Harry leaves. I'm also imagining the Dursleys having to apparate for the <laughs> first time. That How so absolutely true. obscene they would find that.
0: Oh, my God. Because even I, like, as much as I would love to operate, because it would just be so convenient, mm-hmm. the way that they describe it of being sucked through a rubber tube, I think I would hate it, too. Mm, it would be awful. Especially the dirty Yeah. Oh, Jesus.
1: Yeah. And so he explains that Harry's escort will be along shortly, and they, of course, have to time it correctly. So Vernon gives a very underwhelming goodbye and starts to shuffle his family out when Dudley stops and says, I don't understand. And after being asked exactly what he does not understand, he says, why isn't he coming with us in reference to Harry? So Dudley seems to be the only one of the three concerned with where Harry's actually going since he's not going with them. And at this point, Hesty's kind of outraged by their treatment of Harry, which everyone in the wizarding world who sees how they treat Harry is kind of like, what the heck? I know. And Harry says they don't understand. They think I'm a waste of space. And without hesitation, Dudley responds, I don't think you're a waste of space.
0: Dudley's redemption arc is something that I think it means a lot to me, but it also pisses me off because it's a parallel to Draco, right? Dudley is the way he is because of the way his parents raised him, Mm -hmm. and Draco's the same way. So we get Dudley's redemption arc, which he totally deserves. Like, Mm -hmm. he was a kid. He's just doing what he was, you know, taught growing up. And then it just makes me wonder, like, why didn't she
1: follow through that with
0: Draco as well? Yeah. And also, have you heard the headcanon that Dudley had, like, a magical child when he grew up and he reached out to Harry for help when the Hogwarts letter came in. Yeah. I love that head canon. I think it's really cute. Yeah. So
1: before the, the Dursk's leave, Dudley does extend his hand to Harry and actually says goodbye to him. And, like, we're saying that this is kind of the end of Dudley's character arc because this is kind of our closing chapter of those characters. Yeah. They're leaving us now. And I think it was a great way to end... Dudley's and Harry's story at least that we see like if you want to use the headcanon for the future I think that's great but for what we see like in canon yeah, he's breaking away from what his parents put into his mind about who and what Harry is and is kind of moving past that and showing him that that's not what he actually thinks of him anymore so I really like this scene and I'm glad that JK included it yeah I fully agree I like this as well
0: and then we move on to chapter 4. So Harry is making his like last preparations to leave the Dursley's house forever, and he has like a moment to think about, you know, everything that he's been through. He looks at the cupboard under the stairs again and he's like, "Oh my god, like that was so small." And it, it he's, like, all of a sudden interrupted from being nostalgic by the appearance of, like, a huge crowd of people. Hagrid is on Sirius's old motorbike, and then a bunch of people are here on broomsticks and Thestrals. So this includes Ron, Hermione, Mad-Eye Moody, Remus, Floor, Kingsley, Mr. Weasley, Bill, Fred, and George. Whole group. A whole posse, really. Yep. Also, Tonks is there. I think I missed Tonks. And they apparently had to abandon Plan A because Pius is now under Imperius' curse, So the problem that they are now facing is that Harry is underage, so the Ministry still has a trace on him, which means that the protection charm situation is like what they have to go around. So once they get far enough from the house, the protection is going to go away because he's no longer going to call it home. And they're doing it to try to catch the Death Eaters off guard and they like purposefully let out a fake trail, which is what you had mentioned in chapter one, so Snape was right, Yaxley was wrong. And the Order has apparently charmed, like, the heck out of everyone's house, so they don't know for sure which one they're planning on putting Harry in. And Harry's supposed to be going to Tonks' parents' house before all of them meeting up at the borough. which I always thought I'm, like,
1: kind of if I like was a Death Eater, one. I'd be like, let's ch- maybe check the burrow first. That seems like the most yeah. obvious spot. Yeah, I don't... I, I get that either, like, no matter what house that they choose, it's going to be well-protected. But the borough is just such an obvious choice. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like, the first place I would go. That's, yeah, that's the first place I would look. Like Tonks' parents, that would be like, you'd have to dive into the lore a little bit to get to that <laughs> one. But like... Use Kingsley's house. Yeah. Like, who's going to Kingsley's house? Like, I just, yeah, I just, I don't know. The borough,
0: I just felt was a Especially little like dumb. because he
1: works for the ministry, and the ministry's looking for Harry. Why would they take him there? Exactly. Know, right? right? Yeah. So, Moody informs Harry of the new plan,
0: which is that in order to confuse the Death Eaters, they're going to transform six of the people there into Harry clones using Polyjuice Potion. And Harry is not down with this plan. He doesn't want to endanger the lives of his friends in that serious of a way. And Ron goes, like, it's the first time we've done it. So true, King. Mm -hmm. Fred then kills it by saying, well, none of us really fancy it, Harry. Imagine if something went wrong and we were stuck as specky, scrawny gits forever. Harry does not find this funny. I found this really <laughs> <not> very funny. <laughs> but Harry and Moody argue a bit over this. Um, and Moody then says, you know, even you know who can't split himself into seven. Funny. Haha. <laughs> I laughed. But there eventually, you know, Harry realizes that there's nothing else to be done, so they get started, and moments later there are seven Harry's waiting to leave. And Fred and George turn to each other and say, Wow, we're identical. <laughs>
1: So they are funny. If anything, they're, they're funny. I love them so much. This would, um, this would make me so uneasy. Just seeing so many versions of myself, and then when they have to change into the clothes, and I'm like, don't look, guys. Yeah. guys want everyone close their eyes. Don't, no one look. <laughs> I know, God, yeah, that would be really uncomfortable. I can't imagine. Also, for like Hermione and Flora, like now you're in a boy's body, right? Like now you have different areas. I feel
0: I would be so curious. <laughs> I'd be <feel> like, oh. <laughs> What does it look? What do I look like? Mm, Hermione looks down. She's like, "Damn, Ginny!" <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, um, they pair each of the Harrys with an Order member, and they pair the real Harry with Hagrid in the flying motorbike. Which I feel like is also stupid because I also feel like I'd be like, yeah, okay, he's with Hagrid. He's with the big, lit guy. Like, I maybe that's just me, but I thought Hagrid was an obvious choice. I feel like maybe put Moody, him with, like,
1: Bill. Moody was obvious choice, though. Moody is also an obvious choice. Yeah. But I feel like Hagrid was also... Bill, I think Bill's a better option. But I don't think that there, were gonna, there was any way that they were going to separate Floor and Bill.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they would not do that. Yeah.
1: I feel like that there's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Or honestly, put him with Tonks.
0: Yeah. Like I know that Moody I know that Moody says that he thinks that the Death Eaters will expect him to be on a broom, but still, personally, like I don't know, I would have expected Moody or Hagrid. To so put him really. on a with Bill. <laughs> right, thank you. <laughs> but the group of potters and not potters set off into the night, and as they depart, uh, Mr. Weasley tells Hagrid, like, oh be careful, like not all of the bike's special features are fully functional. Wonder if that'll come up later. And then as soon as they leave Privet Drive, they are attacked by Death Eaters on all sides. The Death Eaters start shooting killing curses left and right because the Death Eaters don't care about anything. And the first casualty of the night is Hedwig, which is very sad.
1: Heart-wrenching because they're going to kill Hedwig right away.
0: Yes. Especially, I think it's also like, the title, right, is The Fallen Warrior. Mm. And I think killing Hedwig off is also such like a throw off. Like, you're like, oh, the fuck, Hedwig died. That's who it is. And then later on in the chapter, we'll get there, but they'll hit you But I think also, yeah, the Hedwig metaphor of, like, that being his childhood innocence and dying in the beginning of this book just is so sad. Yeah. I really liked Hedwig. Also, have you heard the theory that Snape is the one who killed Hedwig because he knew that the one real owl would give Harry away as, like, the true Harry? Because, like, they all had stuffed ones, but, like, you can tell, kind of, which one's
1: a real owl, and he oh. thought... That. I didn't see that, but um, there was, obviously Snape is involved in this, and he does some things that I feel like, if you were paying attention, would kind of give him away as to not really trying that hard, but...
0: Oh, yes, I have notes on that we yeah. will discuss, but yeah, I did see that, and I was like, that's, you know, another thing on top of what we'll discuss later that I think might be interesting... So Harry and Hagrid fight their way through all of these people um, attacking, Hagrid tries out some of the motorbike's new tricks, so there's a button that makes a brick wall appear behind them, which is kind of (laughs) sick, and then there's one that's like a super fast burst of acceleration that makes the sidecar where Harry is sitting break off, and then Hagrid attempts to fix it, but obviously he's not that very good with magic, so it just comes off completely. And then Harry saves himself with a Wingardium Leviosa, and Hagrid manages to, like, pluck him back from the sidecar. So then this is where we see Stan Shunpike, who turns out to be one of the Death Eaters, and Harry catches sight of him as his hood falls off and tries to disarm him with Expelliarmus, which was our spell of the episode. And then another Death Eater recognizes him as the real Potter, and Harry is not sure why. Haggard and Harry like desperately speed up. They're trying to head for safety. They're almost at Tonka's parents' house. And just before they get there, though, Voldemort himself appears in like hot pursuit. And he's flying in black smoke, no broom or Thestral. And it's supposed to be this big deal. They bring it up like 17 times in the next chapter. Oh my god, he
1: can fly!
0: And then, of course, like we've already said, the movies fucking ruin this. Because they let everyone do it. Oh, I know. But, yes, he's here, and he's flying. And one of the Death Eaters is about to shoot the killing curse, like, towards Harry, but Hagrid throws himself off the bike fully, just yeets himself off, and attacks them. And then Harry is, like, 100% certain that he's going to die. Would be crazy if he did, considering it's chapter four. But Voldemort closes in, and then he begins to say Avada Kedavra himself, but then something weird happens where Harry's wand pulls his hand around and then shoots golden flames at Voldemort. Why? How? We don't know. Neither does Harry. He takes a moment to use like the dragon fire accelerator on the bike again. Um, and he hits it with his hand and he goes hurtling towards Hagrid and the ground. And then something that I just thought was a little silly was that he tried to accio Hagrid.
1: Yeah, and we've discussed that you can only use
0: it on items or small or animals. animals. But
1: it's, bless him, it's cute for yeah, him to try. It's, yeah, but also there are other spells that you could have used to uh, help him. He I... did Guardian Leviosa, we literally five Leviosa. minutes ago. Yeah, well now on the top of my head, I can't remember what it was. When he falls off the broom, remember that Dumbledore uses the one to slow him down in the air? Oh my god, yes, I hear it in my head, I cannot tell you what it is. Yeah, but like, one of those spells... spells, well apparently we wouldn't have done well in this situation because we can't remember <laughs> the spell, so we can't really rip on him, can we? <laughs>
0: that's so true, we're being hypocrites. But, yeah, he hits the ground, and that's where Chapter 4 ends.
1: So, it turns out that they crash-landed into Tonks' parents' garden. How convenient. And Harry awakens on their sofa. So, Ted Tonks leads the mostly healed Harry and Hagrid to a silver brush, which serves as their portkey to the burrow. When they get to the burrow, Ginny and Molly are waiting for them, but Harry and Hagrid should not have been the first to return. Tonks and Ron missed their portkey, as well as Arthur and Fred, which is putting everyone on edge, obviously. Yeah, fair enough. So Remus and George appear now, but one of George's ears has been sliced clean off, and he is bleeding profusely. Realizing their plans had been betrayed, Remus asks Harry what creature was in the corner of his office when Harry Potter first visited it, which was a Grindelow. And Remus points out that his decision to use Expelliarmus in this life or death situation is what gave him away as the real Harry, since he had done the same against Voldemort before. Which comes to a shock to Harry, but... I mean... Remus has a point. He does. He, he does. A, he does have a point, but also, like, how are you gonna tell this, like, 16-year-old, almost 17, that, like, he needs to shoot to kill? Okay, he doesn't necessarily say kill, but at least, like, stun. But which, they're flying. At the... Which Harry points out, if he stuns him and they're on the broom, it's as good as killing him.
0: See, this is where my Slytherin might come out because if they're shooting to kill me. If it's me or them, but it doesn't I'm have to be me. is Harry's thing. Yeah, but I don't know. I just feel like sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. Like they
1: do not care at all. Like they are trying actively to kill you. Yes, but that doesn't mean that that should make your decision for you. That's the whole point of the whole the quote at the beginning. <laughs> That's the whole point of Harry's character here. You're falling I'm right not into Harry.
0: it. I'm not Harry. If Death Eaters are attacking me, I'll kill them. They're trying
1: to kill me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Anyways, Kingsley appears with Hermione and tests Remus in the same way that he tested Harry. Um, this is when it's revealed that Voldemort flying is actually a big deal, unlike how the movies make you think that it's common. So, Arthur and Fred now burst in, concerned about George, but George cracks a joke about being, um, holy, um, because there's a hole in the side of his head, so, that's nice. (laughs) At least, you know, we know he's still in there. He's not letting this get him down. He did, like, relieve some of the tension in the room. Right. So, now Tonks and Ron arrive to the extreme relief of both Hermione and Remus, and then Kingsley says that he has to get back to the Muggle Prime Minister, but ask them to send word when the others return. Shortly after which, Bill and Flora arrive on a thestral. Bill informs them immediately that Mad Eye is dead, and Mundungus has bailed and disappeared, causing Voldemort's curse to hit Mad Eye directly in the face. So, Mad Eye is another of the fallen warriors that we are losing again in the beginning of this book. Literally chapter five. <laughs> yeah. So they all drink to Mad Eye, and Harry tells them he trusts them all, and if something, if someone slipped up the details, it wasn't intentional. Of course, Remus is quick to point out that James thought the same. <laughs> <laughs> so valid! It's <laughs> just like, God damn it, Remus. No chill whatsoever. <laughs> so Remus and Bill go to retrieve Mad-Eye's body, and Harry announces that he needs to leave too. He tries to explain that he has to leave to protect them, which they obviously don't want to listen to, and he explains how he didn't even escape of his own accord tonight. His wand did magic by itself. Um, he wasn't even sure the spell he had used to produce the gold flames, and nobody... Knows what he's talking about. They're like, "What are you talking? How is that possible?" Once again, nobody believes him. Nobody believes him. So nobody's learned their lesson here. No. They're like, "Harry's a liar." It's like not. It's not like we're on book seven or anything. <laughs> yeah. So Harry walks outside and is hit with an image from Voldemort's mind, and he's accusing Ollivander Olivander of lying to him to help Potter. Apparently, Voldemort was told he could use another wand, and that would work. But Lucius's wand was destroyed. But as Voldemort starts torturing Ollivander, Harry is pulled out of it by Ron and Hermione. So in the book, you're not giving, given too much context about what exactly Ollivander is talking about, but we know their wands have the same core, um, which is the phoenix tail feather from Fox. And since they're like brothers, they can't go directly against each other. Are they dis- They're described as brothers, mm-hmm. right? Siblings? Yeah. So that was... Voldemort trying to move around that by using someone else's wand. But there's
0: another obstacle in the way. But what could that be? One wonder. We wonder. And then we move on to chapter six. Um, the Burrow is obviously, like, very upsetting in the aftermath of Mad-Eye uh, Moody's death. And Harry's really frustrated. He desperately wants to start searching for horcruxes, which is fair. I also throw myself into tasks to avoid dealing with my feelings, so... Cheers to that. Oh, I thought you would laugh.
1: What? I was sipping water. Oh
0: wow, so you're even listening to me.
1: <laughs> Don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> Ron tells Harry that he can't do anything about the Horcruxes until he turns 17 because he's still got the trace. And Harry wants to leave like as soon as his birthday comes in four days, but Ron is like, no, five days we have to stay for the wedding. So according to Ron, uh, Molly is trying to figure out what Harry, Ron, and Hermione are up to. She is firmly against them going off to do anything dangerous, and she, like, really wants to stop them. And she confronts Harry that day herself, and he tells her that they're not going back to Hogwarts and that Dumbledore left him with a mission that only he can accomplish. Molly tries to pretend like everything is fine, despite being super against this, and keeps Harry, Ron, and Hermione so busy with, like, preparing for the wedding that they don't even have time to talk and prepare for anything. Harry also lets it slip to Ginny that they're plotting on how to defeat Dumbledore, and it becomes, like, a little awkward because they haven't been alone since they broke up last year. But then everyone arrives for dinner because the borough has become the new order headquarters. Um, Sirius's um, place at Grimwald um, is no longer safe because they have too many secret keepers after Dumbledore's death, um, but they have placed enchantments there to keep
1: intruders like Snape out. Yeah. Which, which I did not know was a thing. That if your secret keeper dies, then the rest of them become the secret keepers. Oh, you didn't know that? Well, no. Well, obviously. It's not explicitly written in the Fidelius charm that your secret keeper dies and then everyone else is, like, split up. That's fair. You would think that if the secret keeper died, then the spell just becomes null. That's true. Null and void. Like, the fact that it separates to all of them, but then also how to determine who is part of the secret keeper, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I
0: know they say it's, like, it's whoever Dumbledore told... So like if Dumbledore told Molly, then Molly knows. But if Molly told someone else, but then Dumbledore I wonder how has like, would to
1: tell that? you. Because Dumbledore's the secret keeper, so for you to see it, he has to tell you. So anyone who's ever been in Grimald Place while it was the headquarters would have been told by Dumbledore in some capacity.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's so even people. Harry then
1: would be partially secret keeper.
0: Yeah, that's true. But then that brings up the point of Harry wasn't told by Dumbledore. He was told by Moody on a piece of paper. So how He was tar- told it by a note
1: that was written by Dumbledore, because Dumbledore's the secret keeper. Oh, it was keeper. by Dumbledore? It okay. has to be. He's the secret oh, yeah, keeper. Yeah, I guess it does have, that's also,
0: okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, that is, I don't, I don't know how I knew that, but I did know that. It's but a weird, it's-, it's a weird detail, I think. Yeah, that I was but like- I guess it's like a safe, a safe gate in case your yeah. secret keeper dies. You technically have, like, backup secret keepers, but you do run into the issue of if you tell enough people, then it kind of defeats the, the purpose. purpose of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Apparently they have not found Moody's body, and nobody outside of the Order, like, even knows that he's dead, because the Minister of Magic, Scrimgeour, isn't willing to admit how strong Baltimore and his Death Eaters have become. Um. So Flora then turns the conversation to a lighter topic, uh, Harry's disguise for the wedding because he can't show himself in case word gets out and as dinner ends uh, Molly sends Harry, Ron, and Hermione off to do more chores but something that I thought was funny was that Ron and Molly get into this little argument that I have 100% had with my mom before where Molly tells Ron to go clean his room for the wedding and Ron's like are they getting married in my bedroom? No. So why in the name of Merlin's saggy left and then
1: he gets cut off? <laughs> Which I just thought was so no, fucking I've funny. I had the same conversation before. I'm like, we're not going in there. Are they? I'll close the door and we're good. <laughs> no, because people will peep. I know that. They're Snoopy. That's, they're gonna
0: go up there. That is fair. But the three of them managed to, like, sneak into Ron's room to discuss the situation. So they're obviously still very upset by Moody's death. Hermione breaks down crying. Ron goes to comfort her. We get some real action in here. And then Hermione starts getting ready for the journey. She's trying to decide which books to bring and which ones to leave behind. And Harry tries to like make sure that they are absolutely like 100% going to come with him. And they assure him that of course they do. They've already started preparing. So Hermione tells them that she's Um, packed all their necessities including a supply of polyjuice potion and she's even altered her parents memories to make them move to Australia and forget that they have a daughter so they'll be out of harm's way which is very sad yeah and then ron tells harry that he has also started preparing which is that he enchanted the ghoul that lives in the attic to look like him so in case any death eaters come looking for him once they figure out that they're missing from hogwarts it'll look like ron is just home in bed um sick with spattergroid and that will help protect the weasleys from any harm apparently arthur fred and george are all in on this but molly isn't because she still won't like admit that they're leaving They talk a little bit about the plan starting in Godric's Hollow, which is, of course, where Harry was born and where his parents died. And Hermione is a little skeptical. She wants to go for the Horcruxes right away, but Harry just has a feeling that, like, there's answers there. And then they start talking about actually destroying the Horcruxes and the mysterious R.A.B. who stole the real Horcrux and whether they destroyed it or not and how did they do it. And it turns out that Hermione has quote-unquote stolen, but, like, not really, some dark arts books from school and has learned...
1: I mean, she kind (laughs) of She slays this, honestly. She did. I borrowed it. I'm gonna give it back, like... To the dead man, for sure. To the dead man. It's from his office. He's dead.
0: He's not reading it. (laughs) But it turns out that she has learned that a Horcrux has to be physically destroyed beyond any hope of magical repair, kind of like when Harry stabbed Tom Riddle's diary with a basilisk fang in book two, because a Horcrux is, like, the opposite... Of Like a body like the soul in your body if you damage your body, you'll be fine But if you damage the thing like the horcrux is in then it can't it has nothing to cling on to So they're then interrupted by Molly who busts in and demands that they help sort wedding presents and then floor's parents and little sister Gabrielle um, Who will remember from Goblet of Fire was the one who was in the lake for her They show up the next morning and they're all very excited about the wedding And then also Molly has a conversation with Harry right at the end that they should have, like, a coming-of-age birthday party for him since he's turning 17, and that's, like, the legal age in the wizarding world. And he's, like, honestly, just a nice
1: dinner, nothing crazy. And that's where chapter 6 ends. So chapter 7, we start with Ron waking Harry from a dream where he's looking for a man because he was apparently muttering Gregorovich over and over, but neither of them knows who that is. Harry just kind of figures, oh, Voldemort's looking for him. How unfortunate for him. So now it's a surprise. It's Harry's birthday. And now that he's 17, he can officially do magic outside of Hogwarts. And so there's no more trace on him. And Ron gives Harry a book called 12 Failsafe Ways to Charm Witches. That apparently explains everything you need to know about girls. Which is so funny, considering he knows.
0: (laughs) And (laughs) it's his sister. Yeah.
1: How lovely. (laughs) So when the boys go downstairs, Molly is waiting with presents. Apparently it's tradition to give a wizard a watch when they come of age. So Molly and Arthur give him a hand-me-down watch from her brother, like they gave Ron. And obviously this means a lot to Harry, and it was super thoughtful of them to include him in that tradition. Especially because I know that like Molly gets embarrassed because it's not a nice new watch to hand-me-down. But also I kind of see that as almost like an heirloom now. Harry doesn't really have that. Yeah. Like he has... It, it, like, inheritance from his parents in the form of money and whatnot. And the invisibility cloak, and the like, cloak. from James, yeah. But, like, this, I feel like, is being included in a family tradition that, like, he was never expected to receive, I guess. Yeah. Something like, cause, yeah, because he didn't even know that was a tradition,
0: whereas mm-hmm. I'm sure if he had been raised with James and Lily, they probably would have told him, like, oh, this watch will be yours someday,
1: things like that, you Yeah. Know? So Hermione gives him a new sneakoscope, Bill and Floor give him an enchanted razor, which is kind of cool. And the Delacours give him chocolates, the twins give him some merch. All around good good birthday presents. Good haul. So now Ginny asks to speak to Harry. So he like anxiously follows her into her room. Ron's like, what the heck is happening? But Hermione's like, upstairs Ron, now. So Ginny starts talking about not knowing what to give him for his birthday, but wanting him to have something to remember her by. And then she lays on a life-changing kiss, and (laughs) Harry is absolutely (laughs) dumbstruck. Gobsmacked by how magical this makeout is. Smokin' hot kiss. But the moment is cut short by Ron bursting in like a little prick. Idiot. <laughs> He's like, what's going on here? <laughs> All in all, just awkward. As if he's not the one who literally just gave him a book about charming witches. Yeah. (laughs) So Ron and Harry now, like, speed walk into the garden because it's all, like, awkward now. And Ron gives his protective older brother speech while Harry tries to defend himself. It diffuses pretty quickly. I mean, Ginny initiated the kiss, so... Yeah. What are we gonna say here? Finally, the sexy, mysterious, dragon wrangler Charlie Weasley shows up to the party. My man! (laughs) My man! Honestly, I missed him. <laughs> and later on, Tonks, Remus, and Hagrid joined for Harry's birthday dinner. Molly made a cool giant snitch cake, which is kind of awesome, actually. It would be. Imagine if it flied, too. That's what she carried it in. She was using. Oh, did it? I well, she them. was using Wingardium Leviosa, oh, but like okay. she was having it in the air levitated so that it wouldn't get ruined would make... when she carried it. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, I missed that. So Hagrid, though, this is the coolest gift I think. Hagrid gives him Moke skin, which is like a little purse. You can put anything in it and only the owner can get it out. I really want one. I know. That's genius. I really want one. First of all, um, what am I putting in it? Um, Money's too easy, right? I can't remember passwords. I want to write down my passwords. I want to roll up those passwords. Put her in there. That's really smart. Because then no one can get my passwords. Yeah. Genius. What are you
0: putting in yours? See, you're putting me on the spot, now I gotta think about it. Um, what am I putting in this? Something that only I can take out. I'm like looking around my room as if that's gonna help.
1: As if the thing that you can only take out is going to be on display in your room?
0: Yeah, that's so true. What am I hiding? Man, I don't know. Can I say Enzo, my cat? (laughs) You think that he wouldn't die in there? Um, no. I believe that it would be fine. Cause, right, assuming I'm Harry, he but just is, lost Hedwig. I'm not trying to lose Enzo, so I'm going to put is him in it? there. I
1: don't think it's like Hermione's bag where it's bottomless. I think it's just a little pouch. Oh,
0: well. Then
1: I guess I'm going to be lame and say money.
0: Like, I don't <laughs> You're
1: like, money and my vape. <laughs> <laughs> How
0: dare you? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Isabel's
1: not going to fiend off me anymore.
0: <laughs> I come home, I find her. She's like trying to pickpocket
1: the <laughs> skin. God damn it. Yeah. Um, so we find out from Charlie that Norbert is actually Norberta, which really is important to the plot, but I thought it was funny. I love it. Um, so they're waiting for Arthur when he sends his Patronus ahead to warn them the Minister for Magic is coming too. At this point, Remus and Tox are like, gotta go. do this, <laughs> like, jump over the fence. I was like, okay. So Scrimdor gets right to the point and tells Harry he needs to speak with him, Ron and Hermione privately. He tries to separate them at this point and ask them questions individually, but they're like, uh, no. Not gonna happen. I'm not falling for your tricks. So together, he tells them that they're, he is there because of Dumbledore's will. And they're like, what are you talking about? So Scrimgeour is extremely suspicious of the fact that he left them anything, considering most of his possessions were left to the school. So he leaves Ron his Deluminator, which is obviously rare, seeing that Dumbledore created it. And Scrimgeour's like, why would he leave this to you? Huh? Huh? Ron's like, I don't know. Like, actually, doesn't know. And that's the put-outer, by the way. It now has an
0: actual name. Yes, the put-outer. It's put the outer. same thing we saw in book one. Yeah. She just realized. She's like, damn, that was a lame name. I gotta give it something cooler now exactly. that's going to run. Uh,
1: he leaves Hermione his copy of The Tales of Beedle the Bard, and he leaves Harry the Snitch he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts. So Scrimptor tries to interrogate them on the meaning of these items and if they have messages or whatever, but the trio are just as clueless as he is, so really he's not getting anywhere. Yeah. So Scrimgeour points out at this point that a snitch is a great place to hide something small. Harry isn't really sure why, but Hermione reveals it's because they have flesh memory. Um, So a snitch is never touched by bare skin before it's released, not even by the maker who wears gloves. It carries an enchantment that identifies the first human to lay hands on it in case of a disputed capture. So this snitch should remember Harry's touch and only open for him, which is pretty cool. Like, in terms of the book, yes, cool to hide things, but also for the game context, yeah, really like smart. genius, yeah. yeah. So, when Harry takes the snitch from Scrimgeour, nothing happens at all. Super anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. And then Scrimgeour reveals that Dumbledore also left Harry the Sword of Godric Gryffindor. Listen, I'm not going to agree with Scrimgeour on anything, but obviously it was not Dumbledore's place to give Harry an artifact that does not even belong to him. So, like, Scrimgeour didn't bring it, and I'm with him on that one. Yeah, because- I gotta give him some points there. I'm gonna leave you this priceless artifact that doesn't actually belong to
0: me. Hello? That's like, I die, and I'm like, and to Madison. I leave the
1: Declaration of Independence. (laughs) So I show up at the museum, I'm like, see, here in this wheel it says that I'm supposed to have the Declaration of Independence. like, when did I pick that up? Just wondering. Like, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. So, Scrimgeour and Harry at this point get into a fairly heated argument that's broken up by the Weasley's bursting in. After this, Scrimgeour leaves pretty quickly, and they finish up Harry's B-Day dinner and head to bed. So back upstairs, Harry fills his mokeskin purse with the Marauder's Map, the piece of Sirius's mirror, and R.I.B.'s locket. And then Hermione comes in using Muffliato to give them a chance to talk without being overheard and really discuss these newfound inheritances that they weren't expecting because Dumbledore didn't give them any hints, so they have no idea what they're supposed to do with it. Thanks, Dumbledore. Yeah, thanks, dude. At this point though, Harry reveals he wasn't really trying to open this niche in front of Scrimgeour. He knows that he first ca- the first niche he ever caught was the one that he almost swallowed it. So he presses it to his mouth and script appears on the back that says, I open at the close. Thanks, Dumbledore. <laughs> like, okay, first of all, <laughs> that would have been very specific enough. You know, like they're not gonna be like, oh Harry, put this in your mouth. And to get the message. Yeah. But then You've made it past that, which is hard enough. And then there's a cryptic little riddle on it. Come on. Dumbledore, as much as he,
0: you know, did to help Harry, he also didn't do much to help
1: Harry. He really made him work for it. Let's be real. Like, what is this jigsaw-ass shit? Like, <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> I open at the close. Whatever that means. Sure. <laughs> so Hermione's also perplexed because she's like, I've never even heard of Beetle the Bard And Harry's like, yeah, I'm with you. And Ron's like, what are you talking about? He, like, does, like, all the kids' stories are from him. And they're, like, looking at him like, how would you know that? Because it's, like, wizarding kids' stories all come from him. He's kind of like the um, The Brothers Grimm. Grimm. Yeah, Brothers Grimm. So we have this discussion and we end this chapter with them going to sleep. And
0: then we get to Chapter 8, which is the last one that we're going to be discussing uh, in this episode. So it's the next afternoon and the wedding is descending, everything is crazy, everyone and their mom is there, literally, and the place is just filled with Weasley relatives. And because of this, they have decided to disguise Harry as a red-headed cousin Barney because there'll be so many Weasleys there that they're like, yeah, you'll just blend right in. Uh, Fred and George, who is now doing okay besides having a hole in his ear, um run off to flirt with some pretty girls that have arrived so i'm really proud of george for not letting the disappearance of his ear ruin his game he's like i still got it so good for him and then remus and tonks um are kind of in on harry's disguise they were told which one he'd be and they tell him that they're sorry for leaving so quickly the night before but the ministry of magic isn't so keen on werewolves right now so they thought that it would be better for harry if they just weren't there when the minister was Harry does notice that Remus is still looking a little glum for some reason. I wonder why, she says with a roll of her eyes. I just want Remus to be happy. <laughs> so do I, but not like this. <laughs> and then Harry finds Ron with a man who looks a bit crazy, even for a wizard, and he's wearing an outfit composed of just fashion mistakes. And the most interesting one is an amulet that has a strange symbol on it. We'll come back to this. Um, Unsurprisingly, we figure out that this is Xenophilius Lovegood, Luna's father. And Luna's also close behind. She shows up after she's been bitten by garden gnomes. And we kind of realize that Luna's dad is kind of just like her. He's just, you know, they're very pleasant, but a little weird, a little quirky. And then um, Auntie Muriel shows up, and she is just extremely unpleasant and says Xenophilius looks like an omelet, which was funny. I'll give her that. Mm -hmm. And then Hermione breezes in, and she looks beautiful, and they're all kind of joking around until Victor Crumb shows up. And Hermione is pleasantly, but like also a little awkwardly surprised, and Ron is very unpleasantly surprised. (laughs) And he's like, oh, okay, what you know, what's this motherfucker doing here? But then the actual wedding starts, so we don't get anything there, thank God. And Flora floats down the aisle, she's looking as beautiful as ever, like, she's absolutely stunning. People cry, they get married, the ceremony ends, and then the party begins. So, Victor wants to know who Luna's father is, because he seems upset by him for some reason. Ron answers him, but then abruptly is like, Hermione, do you want to dance? And she's like, okay. And then they go. And then Harry uh, takes over the conversation with Victor. Victor obviously doesn't know that this is Harry. But he learns that Victor is upset by the amulet that uh, Xenophilius is wearing, because apparently it is the symbol of Grindelwald, the dark wizard that Dumbledore defeated in 1945. And Grindelwald, we learned, killed a lot of people, including Victor's grandfather, and he recognizes it because Grindelwald also attended Durmstrang, where he went, and he carved it into the wall when he was still at school. Uh, Harry tries to explain how, like, weird and quirky the love goods are, and he's like, Xenophilus means no harm. But Victor is unimpressed, and he draws his wand, like, menacingly, like, just in case. And this kind of clicks a light bulb in Harry's head, and he finally remembers where he knows the name Grigorovich from. He's a wand maker, and he's the one who made Victor's wand. And this is how Harry knows it, because in the Triwizard Tournament, Ollivander, when they were doing the wand-wearing ceremony, he said that. Um, So apparently it's very, like, clear to Harry now that Voldemort is still looking for an explanation for why Harry's wand was able to defeat him, even though he was using Lucius's wand. Victor then takes an interest in Ginny, which Harry promptly shoots down, and Crumb is like, what is the point of being an international Quidditch star if all the good-looking women are taken? (laughs) Which is so funny. Victor ends up wandering off, and Harry runs into Elpheus Dodge, who is the one who wrote the... Um, What's it called? Obituary um, at the beginning. And Harry reveals to him that he is actually Harry. And he asks about the interview that Rita Skeeter gave to the prophet about her new book on Dumbledore. And Dodge immediately dismisses everything Skeeter says. And then the mention of Rita brings Auntie Muriel into the conversation because she's a very huge fan. And she believes all the bad things that Skeeter has said about Dumbledore. And she picks a fight with Doge, who she says worshipped him. They definitely dated. Absolutely for sure. (laughs) And then it does seem, however, as Harry's listening to this, that Dumbledore did have a lot of skeletons in his family closet, including a supposed squib sister who was kept very hidden and whose death Dumbledore may or may not have contributed to, which led to Aberforth punching him in the nose, which is how he broke his nose, something that like was mentioned earlier. Harry has no idea what to do with all of this information. It's kind of a lot. But he does gain one very important piece of information, which is that Rita Skeeter's source that she talked about briefly at the beginning was probably Bathilda Bagshot, who was an old family friend of the Dumbledores. And he learns that Dumbledore actually lived in Godric's Hollow, just like his parents, and that Bathilda still lives there to this day. So this just absolutely cements it in Harry's mind. He has to go to Godric's Hollow. Mm -hmm. Then, all of a sudden, a Patronus in the shape of a lynx interrupts the wedding, and it turns out it's Kingly Shacklebolt, and it addresses the crowd in his voice. He says that the Ministry of Magic has been taken over by Death Eaters, Scrimgeour's dead, and the Death Eaters are on their way. And that's where it ends. Dun, dun, dun. Mom. We really chose, like,
1: the biggest cliffhanger to end this episode. Yeah. Scrimgeour's dead! Why well, Yikes, I guess. Uh... Oh, I'm so sad. He just, like, waits. He waits for a reaction, and everyone's just like, eh, okay. Okay. He's like, okay, well, the Death Eaters are on their way. And everyone's like, oh, shit! Shit, oh, God. Let's do something. Yeah. Also, I know that when they describe Bill's face after the attack, it's, like, supposed to be, like, mangled and everything... But I still will imagine him having like the sexy scar across his face. Do you know what I mean? Like he's still hot. No, absolutely. He's still hot. He absolutely is. And
0: Charlie, I know he probably has scars and burns from working with those dragons. Scars are sexy.
1: Oh yeah. Plus that little earring and whatever choppy um, haircut his mom just gave him, I'm sure he's looking fine as hell. Absolutely, we were robbed of oh, Charlie We, in the movie. Truly we were, were so robbed, by robbed Charlie Weasley not being in the movies and I'm so upset about it. It makes me really sad.
0: But I'm really excited to do this book. Yeah. Well,
1: I yeah yes and
0: no. <laughs> well,
1: okay, that's valid.
0: Yes, because, yes, because it's of, like, like the f-
1: conclusion, but no, because we know what happens, yeah. and not all of it is very good. Every single book that we get into, like the later books, when you know that there's at least one person dying per book, and then oh you're my like, god, one
0: person does die per book starting.
1: Yeah. So once you start like once you start with that trend, you're like, so me going into Order of the Phoenix, I'm like. I don't want to read this because I know Sirius is going to die. Or when you go into Goblet of Fire, you're like, Setter's going to die. Like, every single one, you just know who's going to die. And now we're in this one. It's like the resolution with the big war. So, obviously, lots of people are going to die in this one. We've already started with Hedwig and Moody. Yeah. Which, like, those are, like, sad, but not necessarily the worst. It definitely does get worse. It's going to go downhill from here, really. No, it really is. But...
0: It's still, yeah, it absolutely sucks. But I think, yeah, it's going to be nice to finally, like, kind of wrap wrap it up a little bit.
1: Yeah. So before we finish off this episode, let's go ahead and do some jokes. Um, every week it just gets more and more difficult. I'm struggling to pick. <laughs> to pick one. But you know what? It's fine. We're going to, we're just going to do, we're just going to keep doing our thing. We got it. Okay. How does Professor Trelawney buy her crystal balls? I don't know. By the courts.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I like that actually. Okay, mine's stupid. <laughs> um, where do wizards take care of sick centaurs?
1: Um. I don't know where. In the horse hospital. <laughs> the horse <horse-biddle>. hospital. Cute. <laughs> it's just silly. All right, well, that is all for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Next episode, we will be discussing part two of the Deathly Hallows, so make sure you tune in for that. Make sure you guys
0: also follow us online. Our Instagram is at Review, Our Twitter is at Rev, And, of course, we have our website. And if you guys want to help us out as a podcast, we would really appreciate it if you guys could leave a rating, comment, or review wherever you get your podcasts. And just tell your friends if you like it. Get them to listen. That really helps us out a lot. Thank you.
1: Until Until next time. time.